Thanks, Pastor Luke, for this opportunity to share with you guys. I'll get over in front of that and I'll be blinded. Um, I will say that I'm very grateful to be your missionary um, to Panama. We're very grateful to be working with the, the IMB, with the Southern Baptist Convention. And without your help, we would not be able to do that. So first, I would just like to say thanks for your Lottie Moon Christmas giving and for the cooperative program giving that this church does. That's how we stay on the field. We appreciate that very much. It affords us an opportunity to share that story. That's one of my favorite songs. You know, for years and years, I've always felt like that Victory in Jesus was my favorite song. But quickly, that that song, I love to tell the story, is becoming my favorite song because I get so many opportunities to tell the story. And um, that's what living the Christian life is about, is about telling the story, about what Jesus has done for me. And it seems like every day I learn a little bit more profoundly and a little bit more deeper about really and truly what Christ did for me when He died on the cross. You know, um, recently I, I shared a little bit of this with the guys at lunch, but I want to share it with this, this bigger group as well. Recently I've been, been praying and asking God in my own life, why do I not share the gospel as often as I should? Lord, why do I not share my personal testimony as often as I should? And uh, every morning at 6.30 or five days a week at 6.30, I get up and I go prayer walking because I find if I don't do it early, I don't get it done. So I get up early and I walk through our community and I do some prayer walking and I have some time. And one over a period of time, I was just praying and asking God, God, why is it that I'm not sharing my faith like I should? And one morning, I, 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 God just spoke to me. He said, you know, you're not sharing your faith because you think you were pretty good when you got saved. See, I was just a youth. I had never robbed any banks. You know, I, I, hadn't even, I had never done anything horrific. I'd never killed anybody or anything like that. And so you think you're pretty good. But the reality is you weren't pretty good. And God started showing me, you know, the reality of a person that is without Christ. No matter what age they are, no matter what they've done, the Scripture says all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God and we're all sinners. And God started showing me that you were not good. That was really funny because a week after that, I went to um, uh, Akuna Village and we started sharing uh, a process with this particular village. First time we we had done it, and so I started sharing with these these Kuna folks that were there. Uh, what God was showing me about the personal testimony, the power of the personal testimony, because one of the first things we do in this workshop is we teach folks how to give their personal testimony in five minutes, which is hard for a kuna. Um, but as I shared with those folks, I turned to the pastor in that congregation and I asked him this question. I said, before you had an encounter with Jesus, were you good or bad? And he said, well, I was pretty good. I had never done anything horribly wrong. And, of course, that was a perfect answer for me because I was wanting to tell him how bad he was before he came come to know Christ. But it's, it's the truth. Many of us feel like our personal testimonies have no power because we feel like we weren't saved from much. We hadn't done a lot of bad stuff. We hadn't committed murder. We hadn't done all these terrible things. You know, I think of my daughter. Uh, she was saved at four years old. And, you know, then people say, you know, there's no way she could have understood it for you. There she is. Y'all talk her out of it. <laughs> but, you know, she hadn't robbed any banks at four years old. And so, you know, what she had been saved from really and truly was this terrible sin of lostness that all of us, that Jesus died on the cross to save all of us from. But so many times we miss it. We miss it in our personal testimonies. Uh, one story I love to tell is about a, a young lady. I'd, I'd gone to Africa and I'd come back really excited about sharing my faith. And so I was teaching in Sunday school time uh, a class on how to share your faith. Well, we're working on the personal testimony and she looks at me and she said, one of the ladies in the class says, I, I don't have a personal testimony. And so I told her, I said, well, you're not saved. And she said, what? You can't say that to me. I said, well, if you don't have a, if you don't have a story to tell, then you're not saved. You're not a Christian. 
And then she started to explain, well, you know, I had never robbed any banks and I had never killed anybody, so I didn't have a dramatic testimony. And, And that's the way a lot of us feel, is that our testimony doesn't have any power because we weren't saved from very much. Jesus told a story one day, uh, uh, this is a story of Jesus that happened one day where Jesus was sitting in in a house of a Pharisee and this woman came in and uh, she was weeping because of her sin. She had heard Jesus preaching and she came in and she started weeping and she washed Jesus' feet with with the tears that were coming from her face and she washed his feet with her hair. And there was a Pharisee sitting there and he said, man, if this guy was, was a person of God, he would know that she is a sinner. He would know that and he would not allow her to touch him. And Jesus turns to Simon and he says, Simon, he said, uh, you know, when I come into your house, you didn't, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't have anyone here, one of your servants, to wash my feet. But this woman is washing my feet with her tears. And he said, you know, you never, you never greeted me with a kiss when I come into your house, which is custom. But ever since she came in, she's been kissing my feet. And he looked at Simon and he said, if a person owed a $1,000... And the bank forgave that $1,000 loan. Or if this person who owed $10,000 and the bank forgave that loan, which one would be more appreciative to the bank? And Simon said, you know, the one that had been forgiven the greater debt would be more grateful. And Jesus said, and she's more grateful than you are because she's been forgiven much. That story that all of us recognize is a story that touched my heart as I thought about sharing my faith and about how Jesus had forgiven me of much. And I thought it was just a little bit. You know, we think that we haven't been forgiven much, so we don't need to love much. But it's not true. That's a trick of Satan in our lives. That's a trick of Satan in our lives. We have been forgiven of much, and we need to love much. And I want to encourage each one of you to tell your personal testimony because it has power. Now, just about a week later after that, God started convicting me of something else. You know, first he started convicting me of how bad I was before I, I accepted him, his sacrifice for me on the cross. And then he started convicting me of something else, the reason that I don't share my faith as much as I should. And that is that now, after accepting Christ, I'm a whole lot better than I think I am. Did you catch that? I'm a whole lot better now than I think I am. See, I thought I was pretty good before, but now, see, really I'm a lot better than I am, than I think I am. And therefore, see, this, this margin between the two is narrower. You see what I'm saying? This is the reason I don't share my, my testimony. What do you mean that you're really better than you think you are? Each one of us are better than we think we are because the Scripture tells us, if you want to look at it, it's one, of, one place it says this plainly is in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That we might become, you have become, I have become the righteousness of God in Him, in Christ Jesus. Man, You know what the righteousness of God looks like? Look at Pastor Luke. There's the righteousness of God right there. We are the righteousness of God. We're a lot better than we think we are. See, we think that, you know, uh, we're just poor. We're just poor little um, sinners saved by grace. Thank goodness we are that. But even more than that, we're the righteousness of God. We're the very image of God. He lives in me. He lives in you. His Holy Spirit's been put in you. And He's been put in me for a purpose. And that's for us to tell the world how He's changed our life. Because He's changed my life. Has God changed your life? I love what, um, what your dad spoke about this morning as he talked about the major problem in the church is we haven't had a proper encounter with Christ. 
proper experience with Christ. Now, when you experience Christ, you can't walk away the same. And I want to share a story in a few minutes that will illustrate that in my own life. But, man, that is so true. You know, we've, one, of the, one of the things that we use in Panama to get folks excited about Jesus is experiencing God. Y'all remember that old book that we used to use almost 20 years ago now? It first came out uh, that, that Henry Blackaby, we still use it because it's awesome material. Man, we need to have an experience with God. Every single one of us needs to have a new experience with God every single day of our lives to have that experience with God because it's true. He's always working around us. Now we, we took that uh, Bible study and we had a group from Richmond, Richmond Kentucky that came out and uh, shared it with a, a group of Kuna Indians on the islands. And it changed that island. Man, it changed that island. You know, I, I, thought, I thought we did a very poor job of presenting the material. You know, it's being translated from, from English into Kuna. And uh, so I really didn't understand what was going on. But man, after about three months, they came back to me and said, you know, can we get some more of those books? And I was like, I don't know. You know, those books cost $12 a piece, and I, I don't know. And he said, I I know they're expensive, but we need some more. Order us some more books. We're going to pay for them. Now, when a Kuna Indian pays $12 for a book, it made me set up and start noticing what was going on because that's not normal in our culture for them to be willing to pay $12 for a book. These folks live on an island. They don't have any way to make any money. Uh, Money's hard to come by. They sell coconuts for 50 cents a piece. So they raise coconuts and sell them to the Colombians. And so I knew something was going on. Man, I come back about three months later, I was on the island, and in every house I was in, they had the seven realities up on the wall. And they started talking about what God was doing among them because you know what? They were experiencing God. They weren't just doing a Bible study. They were experiencing God. The youth, now listen to this story. The youth in that church, there's about 80 of them, they started getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning. The sun doesn't come up in Panama until about 6. So they got think about this. Youth, people in high school, were getting up an hour before daylight so they could pray. And they started praying. They started meeting at the church and praying every morning at 5 o'clock. That's not normal. Yeah, that's the only place I've ever heard of that happening. Extraordinary prayer. That's one of the things that we've, we've been asking God to do among us is to see extraordinary prayer because that's always the first evidence when a revival is getting ready to break out is you'll see extraordinary prayer. And so we're, we're promoting folks to be praying all over the country. And these folks started to experience God in their lives. And you know, they're still going through this book. They're still, you know, and it's not just that, you know, they have, they have three women's groups that are meeting every week. They have one men's group, kind of typical, three women's group, one men's group, it's about the right road. But then they have a youth group, and then they have a children's group that are meeting. And then every Sunday morning, the preacher preaches on what they've been studying about all week. So they're, I shouldn't say Sunday morning because they have their big worship service on Sunday nights when he preaches on what's going on in, in that week. So they're experiencing God. And that's one of the things that we, one of the ways that we see God working in Panama. Do you guys share your faith? It's not easy, is it? Some of you have been at this a lot of years, and it's not always easy to share your faith. You know, I've been doing it. Sometimes I jokingly will tell somebody when we're talking about how difficult it is to start the conversation, get the conversation going the right way to share your faith. And I usually tell them, you know, the the first 200,000 times is the hardest. And then after that starts getting a little easier. Um, Because that's true. It it seems like it's always, it's just kind of difficult for us to turn that conversation. But see, in Spanish, I don't have that problem because my Spanish is so bad. You know, I don't, I don't do a lot of chit-chat. I just jump right straight in. <laughs> and so uh, it, it does help me a little bit. And, you know, you can probably figure out from listening to my English, man, this guy's Spanish must be terrible, and you would be right. But, you know, God uses that sometimes to his advantage. You know how God does? He takes the weak things of the world, and he uses them for his purpose. And so many times, you know, I, you know, I have no pride. So I'll get up and start telling the story in a situation, and the guys that I'm 
I'm with, you know, they're like, he should have let me do this. And, you know, I'm thinking, uh, yeah, I wanted you to do this. And so the next time they're willing to do it. Now, if they were with a missionary that had great Spanish, they certainly wouldn't put themselves forward to be willing to tell the story that we're trying to get across. And so many times I feel like it is an advantage because my job is to help them be able to share their faith and to share the stories that we share and to reach people with the gospel. Because you guys probably realize the reality is we're not going to be in Panama forever. As we're changing our focus for reaching folks that have never heard, our time is short that we will be in these countries. I guess I'll go back to where I should have started, but I just had to jump in on sharing my faith. You know, I couldn't help it. But I probably should have started by talking about our our job title is uh, Affinity Mobilizers. That's our, Cheryl and I, that's our job title. And what that means is that we, we help Panamanians... We help them reach their people with the gospel within Panama. We're like a home missionary. We help our home missionaries, our home Panamanian missionaries reach them. So we're always sharing vision with them because there's lots of places in Panama that haven't been reached with the gospel where we'd have no church at all. Many, 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 many places. Um, Yes, they've heard the name of Jesus, but they don't have an everyday witness. And so a lot of times when the churches are talking about where do we need to They'll come to us and say, what do we need? You know, do you know of a good place? Oh, yeah, can I tell you of about a hundred? And we'll start looking at different places and see which place would fit their, their need for starting a church. Recently, this happened, and uh, we had a working with a, a group in Central America called Kobe Bomb. And what this is about, Kobe Bomb is, is uh, they're, they're about... Um, taking folks from different countries and giving them an opportunity within Central America to go to another Central American country on on a volunteer mission trip so that they get a mission experience in another culture because really all of the different countries, even though they speak Spanish... Um, they're quite different. So it gives them an opportunity to have a, cost, a cross-cultural experience. And this is significant because uh, I can remember going to Africa and having that cross-cultural experience. And I can remember seeing God do some things that I, I don't think I could have seen Him do uh, here in the United States within my own culture. But because I was in a different atmosphere, a different culture, Man, the Holy Spirit really grabbed my attention. And this is what we're hoping to see take place uh, with this, with Kobe Bomb. As they come to Panama, they came to me and said, okay, where where would be some good places for us to work at starting some new churches? So um, we talked about one of the places within the city that we have one of our our church planners that we work with uh, called Boca La Caja. Um, which is the mouth of the box, is what that literally means. But it's this, um, it's a little slum area. You know, you can throw a rock from the Trump building to the slum area. If y'all have been in Latin America, you see that a lot. You'll see high-rise buildings, and then you can throw a rock within 100 yards, and there's a slum area. And that's what this is right next to the, right downtown Panama. And so, but it's a place that's completely unchurched place that needs the gospel desperately. It's a place that we had already targeted through this church planner, uh, Adiel Gonzalez. And so we talked about forming this partnership where a team would come. I think the first team is going to be from Nicaragua, and they would work there with him in this place. Another place we looked at was another place that Cheryl and I have done quite a bit of work already is a place called Playa Bique. Playa means uh, beach, so this place is on the beach. And it's a fishing community right outside of Panama City. And um, there's three churches in this community. And there's a, a Baptist church there that's been closed as long as we've been in Panama. And so we're working there to try to re- reopen that church. They have a desperate need in that community. Even though there's three churches there, the people are so confused 
because they believe that they can lose their salvation. Many of those folks will not even talk with you about the gospel because they will tell you, yeah, I, I did all of that, but then I messed up and you know, I'm just not willing to go through the trouble again. And we run into person after person after person that have told us that. But we continually we continue to work in that area with another church planner that we're working with and the Kobe Bomb folks are gonna gonna help us in that area as well. So this is another thing, another way that we're mobilizing Panama, mobilizing Panamanians to reach Panama is through this organization that works within all of Central America. One of the the best, one of the tools that we're using, it's just a tool. You know, I tell folks, um, it's a talk about storing. I want to talk with y'all just a few minutes about storing because um, I like the storing process because it's what Jesus used. Jesus used storing. Jesus was talking to his followers about um, about the kingdom of heaven, and he started talking about this guy that went out to sow seed. Y'all remember the story. And so Jesus used stories as he as he was telling, talking with people. A lot of times he he. Um, he used stories. So I like storing because Jesus used stories. That's one reason I like the storing process. Another reason I like the storing process is because a lot of times we can share a Bible story with somebody and, and man, they're just wide open. It is so easy to tell somebody a story. And yet the same person might not be open to hear the gospel at all, but they would, they would enjoy hearing a gospel story. I saw this one time in Peru. I had gone to Peru to, to get some training, and while I was there, I was in, the, was in one of the parks, and I went up to this older, um, older man that was there, started talking with him. He was a Catholic. Now, he, was, he was in his probably upper 70s, this guy was. Started talking with him, and I just said, Hey, can I tell you a Bible story? And he said, Love to hear a Bible story. So I started and I told him a story. And, um, and then after we, we asked him a couple of questions, I had a, a guy that I was working with there. It's kind of funny because this other guy speaks French, and so I'm interpreting for him. That's pretty, if, you know my, if you know how bad my Spanish is, that's really funny. How does this guy get stuck with me? So as we're talking with this guy, the thing that really God really pointed out to me is how open he was to hear this story. So at the end of the conversation, I said, you know, we don't live here. He lives in Haiti, and I live in Panama, but we have some colleagues that live here and work here, and they would like to start a Bible study. Uh, they would like to start a... I didn't use the word Bible study. I'll take that back. I didn't say Bible study. I said they would like to, to come and, and, and tell some more stories. Would you be willing to gather some of your friends into your house and for them to come in and tell some Bible stories? He said, hey, that, I would love to hear more Bible stories. And that really struck me because I was thinking, what would this guy's reaction have been if I would have said, would you like for us evangelicals to come into your house and do a Bible study? You can imagine what he would have said. He wouldn't have wanted any part of that, I'm quite sure. But because we're telling a Bible story, and he was, you know, they believed the Bible, right? And so it was much easier for him to, to hear a Bible story than it was for me to preach to him or do a Romans road type of approach with him. It was much easier for him to hear a Bible story. And one of the things that's tough about Bible storing is we have to depend on the Holy Spirit. We're, you know, we are bound to depend on the Holy Spirit when we tell a story. It's not our persuasive words because we're just telling a story. We're just telling a story that the Bible tells. And most of us that have been in church for many years, we've heard these stories. We know these stories forwards and backwards. It's not any problem in telling the story. But when we tell the story, then the Holy Spirit's able to use that to convict folks. And usually when I tell a story in just a, a setting that's open where we don't folks are not Christians, we're not meeting together. I just ask four questions and they're just very simple questions. You know, I, the first question is, what did you like about that story? And then the second question I ask them is, what did you not like about that story? And then the third question I ask them is, you know, are there are there things in this story that make you think of a character of God? Can you see one of God's characters in this story? 
And then the other question I ask is, is there something in this story that tells you something about the character of man? Four simple. Is there anybody here that couldn't ask those four questions? Those are really four. They were really, and if they don't talk, we don't give them any answers. We, this is them. It's, it's, it's their deal. If they don't, because when you first start doing it, they've been churched to death. They won't talk to you. Now, I don't talk back to them. We just sit in silence. After about the fifth week, they start giving you some answers, you know, because we're wanting them to think about these things as we tell a story. You tell a story like creation. We all know the creation stories. And then I ask you, is there anything about this story you like? Well, we were talking about creation on Wednesday night, wasn't we? Man, this story explains a lot of the things that we talked about. It explains a ton of things. It's a, a ton of things about God's character in the story of creation. You know, the next story of the fall, we certainly learned something about man. We learned something about man in the first story as well. We learned that he was created, right? He, he was created by God. But these four simple questions, as they start to understand what you're doing, it take, it's a process. It doesn't happen the first week. A lot of times our, our nationals get, get weary and well-doing, but they won't see it through to the end because you ha- sometimes it takes them a few weeks to understand this is not what we're used to. This is something different. And so at that point, I start talking with our nationals about a new normal. I say, you know, what we're trying to accomplish here is a new normal. And they look at me like you guys are looking at me and said, what in the world is he talking about, a new normal? And so I try to explain it to them like this. I say, you know, we go to church, and this is what's normal at church. You know, we go to church, we sing some songs, the preacher gets up and preaches a great sermon, and then we get in the car and we go home. They get in the bus and go home. And... Usually by the second day, by Tuesday, we forgot all about what that preacher preached about. We, we don't even think about it anymore for the rest of the week. And then on, on Sunday, we go back and we do it again. So when I talk about a new normal, I'm talking about a new process that, that's different than that. And it's a process of where when we tell a story, we give them, we give them homework. We send them out to do something with this story. It's a, it's a discipleship that's using that's obedient based. Folks will go out and they will do what Jesus told us to do. He said, "Go and tell." And so it's an obedient based type of ministry. And so you know we, it's got to be simple. So the story that we tell is three minutes. Now a lot of folks in Panama don't read. They don't read very well. They don't read with very high comprehension. A lot of times they can make out the words, but they have no idea what it means. So the stories have to be short, and they have to be where everyone can, can comprehend the story. So one reason we use storing is because we change a few words so that we have good understanding. You know, to use a big word that's in the Bible that most of us don't understand very well, propitiation. You know, when we get to that word, we just kind of skip over it. It's not really that important. So when we get to a word like that or any other big long word or a word that has more than one significance, a lot of times in storing we will change that word and we may use ten stories, ten words to describe what it's talking about so that the meaning is very clear in what we're teaching. You know, there's... Um, one of the, we have four principles in storing. Uh, as good Baptists, we always want to keep it biblical, right? It has to be biblical, biblical, biblical. It has to be biblical or we don't tell it. We don't make up these stories. These are Bible stories, and we keep them true to what God's Word says. Very, very important that it's very biblical. The second thing is it has to be reproducible. So what we're telling them has to be something they can reproduce or else the obedience-based thing don't work. It's not, it's not reproducible for them. So it has to be simple and they can remember it and they can tell the story. The third thing is um, it has to be... Um, 
What's the third thing? <laughs> it has to be it has to be complete. I'll tell you the fourth thing, then maybe I'll remember the third thing. The fourth thing is the story is complete. We tell the complete story. We don't tell part of a story. When you're storing, if you don't tell the whole story, a lot of times you will miss what Jesus was really pointing at. A good example of that I think is uh, the the parable of, of Jesus tells three parables together. He tells one about a woman who lost some coins. He tells one about a a sheep that was lost. And then he immediately tells the son the story of the the parable of the the prodigal son. And a lot of times when we're telling that story of the prodigal son, we leave off the end of that story and we don't tell about the older son when he came back and, and what happened there. That's one of the really important things in storing is tell the whole story. Because what happened with that older son is really the point Jesus is trying to make. Because what we see is it's the same. First story, where she lost the coin, they rejoiced. Second story, lost the sheep, found him, they rejoiced. Third story, they rejoiced, but then somebody's unhappy. And Jesus is pointing to... What, how about this right here? Think about this right here. And that's really important. When we tell stories, we tell the whole story. Reproducible, and it has to be understandable. That's the other word. That's the other. That's the third point. I told you the fourth one before I told you the third one. It has to be understandable. If we tell a story they don't understand, if we use big words, or if there's something about the story that they, they don't understand, then there's no reason to tell the story. So we have to make it where it's understandable. Talked a whole lot about stories and why we use stories. I would like to share with you all... Uh, just a few stories. Would that be okay if I shared with you just... I'm going to share with you three stories. Probably take t- ten minutes in total to share three stories with you. Um, and the first story I want to share with you is my story. Uh, I was born here in Kentucky. Um, it was raised in a, in a very poor family. My dad was a sharecrop farmer. He had seven kids. And we were very poor. But you know what? We went to church every Sunday. My mom took us to church. I tell folks, you know, I went to church nine months before I was born, and that's true. My mom got saved while she was pregnant with me, and I went to church for nine months before I was born. So I've been well-churched. And, um, but, you know, as, as I started growing up, I heard about Jesus all of my life, as most of us have. We've heard the story of Jesus all of our life. But it had never dawned on me that I was that sinner that the preacher was preaching about every Sunday. But one, one Sunday, the Holy Spirit started working in my life. And as the Holy Spirit worked in my life, it made me start to think, you know, maybe he's talking about me. And, uh, but there was a point in my life when I come to an understanding that I was a sinner, that I was separated from God, that I was this person that was on the way to hell. You know, that was me he was talking about. And the Bible says that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And that was me. I was part of that all that had fallen short. So there was a point when I realized this and that Jesus said, if you, forget, if you confess your sin... He's faithful and just. He will forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. And you know, there was a day when I, I got on my knees and I prayed and I asked Jesus to change my life, to come into my life, to take all of my sin away. And you know, from that time to today, I can tell you that I haven't been the same person I was before that. God changed my life. God's walked with me every step of the way. You know, Jesus said, the last promise that Jesus made was, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. And I found that to be true in my life. Jesus has walked with me every day of my life. From that day till today, Jesus has been with me. He's never left me. Now, there's been some times that I've left Him, but He's come along anyway because He's with me always. Jesus has been faithful in my life. Now, there's another story in the Bible that I'd like to tell. This is a story that you'll find in in the Scripture. And 
his story is about Jesus. He's preaching the gospel on the mountain. And uh, he's talking with his disciples, his closest followers. And he says, you know, guys, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they get in a boat and they started across the lake. And as they're getting close to the other side of the lake, there was a man uh, up in the mountains. And he saw Jesus coming. And man, this man was a wild man. Scripture tells us that he was naked and that he would scream and holler at the top of his voice and that he would take stones and he would cut his flesh and he would cut himself with those rocks. And the Scripture tells us that many times the people who lived in that part of the world would try to chain him up. They would put him in chains. They put him in leg irons, but he was so strong that he could break those chains. He'd break those leg irons, and he would continue to run, and he was so crazy that he was living in a cemetery. But this man, when he saw Jesus in the boat, he recognized who Jesus was, and he ran straight to the shore where Jesus was getting out of the boat. And the Scripture tells us plainly that he fell down before Jesus. And he said, Jesus... Son of the Most High God, why have you come here to torment me? And Jesus looks at the man and he says, What's your name? And the man said, We are legion because we are many. And they started begging Jesus to send them into these hogs that were located there on the mountain. Because Jesus had already told the demons to leave the man. Jesus gave them permission to go into this herd of hogs. So there were 2,000 hogs on this mountain, and the demons went into them, and when they did, they ran down a hill and jumped into the, the, the lake, and they drowned. Now, there were some people there that were taking care of the hogs, and when they saw this take place, they ran. And as they were running along the way, they would tell people about what they had just seen take, took place. And they went into the city there and they told everybody what had taken place. And when the people heard it, they said, hey, let's go out and see what's going on. When they got to the place where Jesus was, they saw this man. They knew this man that had been, he had had a demon. And he was sitting there in front of Jesus. He was clothed. He was talking to Jesus in a normal voice. And they were amazed at what they had saw. They become afraid. They become afraid and they start begging Jesus to leave their coast. So Jesus went to get in the boat. And as Jesus is getting in the boat, the man that had had the demon was begging Jesus. He said, Jesus, let me go with you. I want to be with you. And Jesus said, no. You need to go back to your family and tell your friends what great things that God has done for you. And the Bible tells us that that man went back to his home rejoicing. And he told his family and he told his friends in ten cities what Jesus had done for him. And it says that everyone was amazed at what had happened in this man's life. Now what happened in this man's life and what happened in my life were the same thing. They were the same thing. Now let me tell you a third story. I went to Africa in, in 1999 and, and uh, I was, was sharing the gospel on, on a path and we were going house to house sharing the gospel and there was this man laying in the path. Now most folks were doing, they were, in good, they were in good health, but this man obviously was not in good health. He was really the first person I saw that wasn't in good health and you know he was dirty and he hadn't had a bath in a few days and his hair was all tangled up and he had stuff running out of his eyes and he, you could just tell he wasn't in good shape. He wasn't taking care of himself and we started a conversation with him and and um, the translator had asked him if I could share a story with him and he said no didn't want to hear a story that he was waiting for his brothers to come back from Mombasa and that they were going to give him the traditional things so we talked with him some more and after much ado I said can I pray for you and he said yes please pray for me so um, I prayed for him and he looked at me and he said, you know, you don't understand what's going on in my life. And he pulled his 
shirt down a little bit and he showed me his neck and then he explained to me that he had tried to commit suicide by hanging himself that night he had failed but his neck was all the all the hide was tore off of his neck and he was in distress well he wouldn't let us talk with him so we went to the next house and as we got to the next house, we started sharing the gospel with this young lady there in the yard. And, and as we're sharing the, the, the gospel with her, I noticed that this guy had walked up the path behind us and that he was sitting out there about 30 feet from us. And he's sitting there listening to what I'm telling this young lady. We shared with her and, and she prayed and received Christ. And we got up and we walked to the next house and he follows along behind us. Now at the sec- at the, this next house, we're sharing the gospel and, and the man that was there at the house, uh, he looks over and he sees him. He's standing at the gate looking into the yard. And so he asked the, the translator what he was doing because they all knew this guy. He lived there in that community. And, and so he told him. And, and so the, the owner of the house went over and got him and brought him into the yard and told him, you need to hear what this man has to say. And he looked at this man and he said, I heard him. I heard what he told her. And I want Jesus. I want Jesus. So I sat down and shared the gospel with him the best that I knew how. Wanted to be sure that he understood. He prayed and he received Christ that day. Every day about 3 o'clock in the afternoon we would have a worship service. And at 3 o'clock that afternoon this man came to that, that worship service. But you know, I didn't even recognize this guy when he came in. He had gone home, he had taken a bath, he had put on clean clothes... But the thing that was most incredible is that morning when I saw him, he was so discouraged. And he was, you know, I really believe that demons were tormenting this man. And he was ready to kill himself because he was without hope. But when he came that afternoon, he had this big smile on his face. And he was excited. And he was glad to be there because Jesus had changed his life. And you know, I thought as I sat there that afternoon, I was thinking, this must have been like what it was like when the, they came to see the demonic. You know, when they didn't, they looked at this guy and they could tell there was something different about this guy. And as we looked at this guy, we could see that he was clothed and he was in his right mind. He wasn't the same that he, as he had been that morning when I first saw him. And you know, that guy's life was changed forever that day. This guy, this, this guy in Kenya, his life was changed forever that day. But, you know, I stand here before you and I tell you, my life was changed forever that day. I had had an encounter with Jesus. I had seen Jesus do something very similar to what had happened in Mark chapter 5 with the demonic. And my life would never be the same because I saw that. I had that personal experience. That's the power of transformation. Remember, I shared this morning that Jesus is a transformer. And Jesus is able to transform lives. This is a little bit of an example of how we would share a story. Simple story, my story, the demoniac story. Simple stories, but demonstrates very vividly how God, how Jesus, is able to change our lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you all have any questions that you might like to ask? Um, about Panama or about our work there or about storing, uh, I'd be glad to try to answer any questions that you may have. How long have you been in Panama? Been in Panama just over five years. Yeah, just over five years. We're in Costa Rica for a period of time before that, getting some language training. We love Panama. It's a wonderful place. The standard answer is, tell me about Panama. Well, it's hot. It's hot, yeah. It's hot in Panama. It's always hot. But we love it. Real receptive to the gospel here. Um, Yes, I would say that the people are receptive to the gospel. Um, You know, 95% of the people, uh, 90-95% of the people are are mestizos. And the mestizos are, you know, they all are, are come out of or are Catholic, at least by birth. And so we don't deal so much with, with the stuff of proving that God exists. They believe the Bible. Um, 
they have a totally different understanding about the Bible. But we never have to convince anybody that God's real, that He exists, and that the God of the Bible is the one one true God. We very seldom have to deal with that. We work. Some of our tribal folks. We have about five percent tribal peoples, and some of them are animistic. Um, but you know, most of them are very receptive to hear the story of Jesus. And it's not any trouble at all to have somebody to take five minutes and talk with you about the gospel. Uh, just a little bit, because I don't know that much about it. Animism is, um, you know, they, they believe that, that God's in the trees, uh, God's everywhere, everything's God. And uh, so, basically... Uh, an animistic person um, just believes that they exist and they don't want to make the gods angry. And so they, they're making these these sacrifices, if you will, to keep the gods from being angry. And and the, their their concept of God is not a creator God, but it's the th- really the things that God created. And they see the God, God in those things. Is it separate gods for... Um, they just kind of have this 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 um, linear thinking of God. That God's in all things, instead of God being the creator of all these things, but that He's in all these things. They're not necessarily different gods like the Hindu religion, where they have all these different gods, but that He's in all of these things. Um, we don't deal with that very much because most of our tribal peoples have heard the gospel. We don't really deal with animism very much. But it's there. It's there. And we see some of the leftover, leftovers of it. You know, you'll see house idols and that sort of thing uh, that's leftover from animism. But uh, they don't, for the most part, don't believe in those things. No, we work. We work in um, a lot of different places. Um, we have a home church, Redencion Redemption Baptist Church. That's our home church. We're usually in Redencion about uh, one week a month on average, and the other three or to four weeks a month we're somewhere in the field working and so we're in that church wherever it may be all over Panama we work in Panama we have a convention of Baptist churches we have 122 Baptist churches we work with those churches but we also work with some other other churches as well that are not part of that convention the IMB has actually started a lot of these other churches that are not part of the convention work um, through the years so we work with a lot of other Baptist churches as well. And we work with some churches that are, are evangelical and they are they are Baptist churches really, but they were, they don't use that term because they were started by new tribes. They were started by new tribes missions and if you know anything about new tribes, ninety nine percent of the people from new tribes are Baptists. And so those churches are Baptistic churches and we have no trouble working with those churches. They're they don't have any different theology than we do. We also work with a few independent Baptist missionaries there and a few independent Baptist congregations, um, which I think is a great thing. Um, Usually, you know, our early experience was that the independents wouldn't work with us, but they will. A few of them will work with us now. We've we've built some good relationships with uh, three different independent Baptist missionaries and working very closely with them. And some of them are very excited about storing, by the way, as we've shared what we're doing. Some of them are very excited about the T for T process and ST for T process. What does the indigenous leadership development look like in Panama? Hmm, good question. Um, it, it's much better among the Kunas. We have seven indigenous groups. Okay, We have seven indigenous tribes in Panama. Uh, the biggest two, the biggest three we work with, uh, the, the largest one is the Nalbe, and they're located up close to Costa Rica in the mountains. And, that in, and they are very, um, they're not very progressive. You know, they, they don't do well in modern society. 
And so when they come to the city, usually they don't prosper very well and things turn out badly for them. So they try to keep them in... They try to, when I say they, the leadership, try to keep the people in the mountains because they just do better there. And the leadership in, among that group is um, among them, among their leadership. They are, they are doing some work. We are having... We have one pastor that's leading a, a seminary class for that people group and there's about 20 in that class and uh, so we do have a little bit of leadership development going on there Cheryl and I have worked a little bit up in that area as well we have a young church planner up there that we were, we've worked with and for instance one of the things we did recently was he, we, we were talking about uh, the Lord's Supper and the significance of the Lord's Supper and he comes out with you know we haven't celebrated the Lord's Supper in our church in as long as I can remember and so we went up, me and a couple of other um, uh, church planners that work with me, and we went up and we did kind of a seminar and kind of reestablished the Lord's Supper in that church. So that we did something like that, which I would consider that leadership development. When they're not doing it, they need to be developed in that way. Um, among the Kunas, the Kunas are doing a pretty good job. Uh, the Kunas are the most progressive tribe. They're on the cutting edge of everything. And they're doing a, a very good job of reaching people with the gospel. We're at the point with the Kunas where we're trying to mobilize the Kunas into other areas of Panama. <clears throat> the Kunas are very open to that. They do very well in modern society where the other tribe don't. And so we've actually, last year, year before last, last year was, last year we had two Kuna uh, youth pastors that come from the islands. The Kunas live on the islands of Kunayala. And uh, they went to the interior of the country and spent a month doing mission work with one of our church planners that was working in the, in the Los Santos area. And uh, so we're able, we've actually been able to mobilize some of them from one place to another. And they're doing a very good job of leadership among themselves, but also they're very open to some other folks coming in. One of the independent Baptist guys I was just talking about that we're partnering with, uh, he lives in Costa Rica but comes into Panama and works, and he's doing a four-year seminary program there on the islands for the Kunas. Uh, among the Embera, another group that we work with, uh, there's not a lot of leadership development going on that I know about other than what we're doing. Now, we are working with a lot of Emberas uh, and doing some leadership development with them. Uh, when I talked about this thing that we did with the Kunas where we did this workshop. I actually had nine Embera show up for that workshop. There were, only, there were 15 Kunas and nine Embera. And uh, I was really excited about that because what I'm trying to do in this workshop is just to show them how to use the stories to be able to use stories for, for evangelism. One of the young Embera guys, he came to me later and he said, we want to, to share this with our youth group. Now, when they talk about youth, they're talking about people up to about 30. Okay, they're not talking about people in high school. And so he said, we want to share this with our people, and then we want to take it, and we want to go to a place up in Rio Congo, and we want to share it up there because they don't have any churches up there. And so we're working on a, on a plan for them to teach their people what we taught them here at this. They're going to teach them, and then we're going to go somewhere else, and we're going to do it and teach them. So that's what we're trying to do. That's when we, We're really excited about that because when you see it start happening like the way you intend it for it to happen, it hardly ever, that it hardly ever happens. And so we're really excited about that. I shared just a little bit more about that. We have one of the Kuna boys that we have trained in this process of using stories. We learn more from him than he learns from us. But he's going the 25th next Saturday to his island, and he's going to share this process by himself to the church there at, at, at Ali Gandhi. And um, actually, it, it will be the five churches that are in that association will come together, and they, he will show them this process of how to use the stories to share the gospel and use it in evangelism. So we're really excited about that when they're going and doing it without us. Great, great question. Lots of work to be done. Lots of work to be done there. Other questions about Panama? Nobody asked about the Panama Canal. No, not about that. It's also a way you know, for us to know how to pray. And I'm pretty sure we do. But you said something about that because some things are changing. You know, time is short. And 
And I really was paying attention, but I thought there was something else about that. What does that mean? Or what are your plans? Or what's on the horizon? Well, we, we don't know uh, really and truly. You know, we don't know. They haven't said, okay, here's the deadline uh, for when you, how long you can be in Panama. We don't know that right this moment. Um, what we do know is that our focus has changed from, you know, for many years we were using hospitals and we were using a lot of, a lot of institutions to reach people with the gospel. And in 97, that all changed with New Direction. And now we're refocusing again on reaching, reaching the, the ones have never heard. Less than 2%. If, you're, if, if your people group is less than 2%, then we're focusing on reaching you. And, uh, and in the Americas, we work in the America Affinities. You know, we had, um, you know, we had, they were telling us like 507 people groups that were less than 2% evangelized. And then we got looking at the numbers more closely. And, uh, you know, most of those, out of that 507, there was like 380 of them that were uh, less than 1,000 people in that people groups. So most of them are very small. These people groups that have never heard the story are very small. And then we got looking at how many of these people groups were over 100,000. Uh, and then we found out, you know, we only have like 13 that are over 100,000 100, of this 507 that we started out with. So you can see that... that the, the, we're doing a better job of people having heard the gospel. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the ones that have heard the gospel are going to, going to heaven, right? But they've at least heard the name of Jesus, and we have a, a count of 2% evangelical. The thinking is if they're greater than 2%, they can reach themselves. What we're doing, Panama is probably about 13% evangelized. You know, as a whole, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe even 15%, depending on what numbers you use. You know how statistics work. Um, so you say, well, why are you still doing it in a place that's 15% evangelized? Well, the reason we're there is because we have a great number of Christians that are mature Christians that are ready to be mobilized to do something. So we're there as, as affinity mobilizers to mobilize them to reach their own people, to reach these this other 85% that haven't that haven't accepted Christ, and so we're not only working in that area. We have another guy that works in mobilization, uh, affinity or mobilization outside of the affinity, which would be to the world. And we, as we run across folks, we we get we turn them over to him to try to mobilize them to China and Africa and, and all these other places in the world where we have tons of unreached people groups that are less than two percent. India. Well what's beautiful about all of it, you told us you said extraordinary prayer precedes revival. Amen. And so, you know, I'm probably not the only one that says I'd like to join those that are involved with extraordinary prayer. So Amen. This is good stuff. Okay. Well, I can only talk about that a little bit because that's not our cluster, and so I'm not, I don't know near as much. I wish Gary had come because he could talk a lot about that. My good friend Gary Tufts lives here in, in Louisville, and I thought he was going to be here tonight. Embrace. Embrace is where uh, our Southern Baptist churches are working. Uh, with missionaries on the field, and some of those cases, uh, they're going and they're working without using, without churches being, our missionaries being involved at all. Um, you know, I ha- kind of have mixed feelings about this. I want to try to explain this to you guys. I'm getting on shaky ground here, but I just want to tell you my point of view as a missionary in the field. Most of these places in the Americas that are not reached are not reached for a reason. They're not reached because they're hard to get to. They're not reached because they're dangerous places they live. You know, some of those people are just outside of Panama in Colombia, and that's where the FARC works. Are you all familiar with the FARC? It's a, it's a terrorist organization, and it's a very dangerous place for white people to be. They will kidnap you in a minute. And so we have to be They won't let us go into the dairy. I can go down. I can go into the Darien area, but not up those rivers toward Columbia. We just can't get, we can't get up there. If we wanted to go up, they'd stop us because there's policemen at all the checkpoints, and you just can't get up those rivers because it's very dangerous. So we can't get up there as missionaries. 
And I don't know how the churches are going to get into those areas. Through the Embrace program, one of the things where we've cast vision to do is for churches to pick up. There's nobody reaching them. We don't have enough resources within the IMB to reach them. We're saying, churches, would you pray about reaching one of these unreached people groups? But I feel like we're going to have to be careful because think about this just a minute. Let's use the Embera. I talked about the Embera in Panama. They're a reached group. But we have an Embera group in Colombia that's completely unreached. Zero, no Embera in this particular group reached. And it's one of our target areas. We've been praying for these, this group. It was one of our targeted areas for the Americas last year that we were praying for. What good would it do for your church, for example? How many of y'all speak Embera? <laughs> If you go into this place, it's very dangerous to get into. How, how, how well do you think you could do is sharing the gospel with these people? So this is my point. If we're, I don't think our life is so precious that we shouldn't be willing to give it up for the gospel. I don't believe that. But let's not give our lives up for no reason. Let's not go to those dangerous places when we can't communicate the gospel. So if we're going to try to go to these places, we need to be prepared before we go. So I'm, I'm, I'm totally for embrace. We need to embrace those unreached people groups. But let's do it in a strategic way where when we go in, we're, we're ready to share the gospel in an effective way. What we're doing about that in Panama is we're talking with our Embarag brothers and we're trying to mobilize some of them to go in. You know why? They speak Embarag. They understand the culture. It's not dangerous for them to be there. They blend in. They don't have this color skin. And so that's the kind of work that we're trying to do on the other side of the, the embrace thing is we're trying to mobilize some of our guys to go into those places and to share the gospel that have experience and can make a, an immediate difference. But that's, that's a little bit about the embrace thing. If you guys are interested, uh, you, can, you can look online at the IMB website, and there's all kinds of people groups there, and you can pick one of those and be praying for them. Man, that's an awesome thing to do because until you have this, uh, this, this, this prayer that we're talking about, this prayer support, nothing happens. I mean, we see it over and over and over again. I just recently went to Cuba. I had the opportunity to go to Cuba in February, and I've never seen anything like that before. But prayer is what made it all happen. That was the spark that made what's going on in Cuba. I don't know if you guys are even familiar with what's going on in Cuba, but they're having a, they're having a church planting movement take place in Cuba. It's incredible. Examples, statistics. All missionaries use statistics, and I haven't used any yet. <clears throat> but in 1980, 19... 92, they had 133 churches in the, in the country of Cuba. 133 Baptist churches. In 2010, they had 8,000 Baptist churches. 8,000 Baptist churches. The, that's a church planting movement. We're not seeing anything like that in all the Americas. That's the only place that that's taking place. As you know, there's quite a bit of persecution that goes on in Cuba. It's not nearly as bad as it was uh, even 20 years ago. There's been, I mean, they let us go in as missionaries even to visit and to observe and to be part of it. Um, but there still is some persecution going on there. But it happened through prayer. It happened through prayer. And when we see extraordinary prayer, then we can be sure that something's going to happen. We went into a church on a Tuesday, a random day, Tuesday, 9 o'clock in the morning. There's 150 people in the church praying. And, you know, we start asking them about this, and they say, oh, yeah, we pray every day. Um, and Tuesday is actually the day that mothers come and pray for their children. So all the mothers that are able... They have a specific time they meet and they pray for their children on Tuesdays. Uh, so everybody can do that. You guys can definitely be involved in picking a group and praying for that group. That is something that is um, very, very, very necessary and very easy for us to do And in relation to actually learning the Embraer language, which would be very difficult for any of us to understand. Because they speak up here in the nose. Any other questions? These are great questions. 
Yes, sir. Uh, is there a lot of, I mean, obviously through that whole corridor, there's a lot of drug trafficking. Have, have you or any of your missionary friends been um, subject to any danger from that? No, but you're right uh, about what's going on. We There's checkpoints everywhere. You know, we get checked um, all the time where they'll just have a police checkpoint and they'll just look in your car if you've got a, a backpack a lot of times I'll be carrying a backpack with some stuff in it they won't look in your backpack but no we've never really been hassled very much um, I don't think that the gringos are causing the problem and so that we're not very suspect and they don't they don't really hassle us very much about that but there's one particular place that we work a lot and every time you come out you're going to get stopped so it's it's very evident that there is a lot of drug trafficking and the police are are working that but we haven't been hassled over that at all one time we were working in that community and um, there's a there's a little hotel there so the team was staying in that community i drove home every night it was so close but they the the riot police came to where we were eating breakfast one morning. Um, we were building a fence around a piece of church property, and we'd been working for a couple of days. And they come up and said, oh, "We heard there were some gringos in the neighborhood. What are y'all doing? You know, you, you, you're going to get killed." And you know, I work in this place all the time. Never considered it ever to be dangerous at all. And um, they ended up. They didn't hassle us. They let us go on and work. And but they were just concerned for us. Here they were in full right guard. Um, you know, with all of the masks and machine guns and everything, um, it was a little scary, I guess. But that was the only—that was the closest that we ever come to being hassled about that. Um, we did go to the Dedham Province with one of our our, our eye doctors from Lexington and uh, to do a clinic with the with the Wound Nine people, and uh, that's at the end of the road. You know, the road doesn't go into Columbia from Panama. It dead ends. And this is at the end of the road where it dead ends. And we did get hassled there two or three different times. They stopped us and asked us for ID and asked us for our special permission to be there and that sort of thing. But that's about the extent of it. We're not, we don't feel persecuted at all.